Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to Inside AgriTurf, a series of podcasts in which I will be talking to those at the heart of the farm and grass machinery industry. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Inside AgriTurf. And when I say in my standard introduction that I talk to those at the heart of the farm and grass machinery market, this time I really mean it. For my guest today is David Hart, the Managing Director of Kubota UK. David spent over 33 years in the John Deere camp, first as a dealer, then in a number of management roles within Deere in both the agricultural and turf care machinery divisions. He was appointed to his current role in July 2018 and with Kubota already having a strong presence in the grounds care market and today a growing portfolio of tractors in the higher horsepower bracket and machinery such as the Cavernlin brand plus of course a construction machinery division, David is ideally placed to provide a wide-ranging view on this market we call AgriTurf. So, David, welcome. And uh, if we could go right back to the beginning, um, did you choose agricultural engineering or did it choose you? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question, uh, Chris. Yeah, originally um, my, my father was involved in local authority. He was the, um, what they called back then, the county plainfields officer for Norfolk. Um, so even though he was a Geordie, he came down after the Second World War and, and ran the Plainfields Department for Norfolk County Council. So I had a sort of background. He was an avid golfer as well. So everything to do with ground care and turf culture was was his bag. And and I was, when I left school, going to go to Norfolk College of Horticulture and Agriculture. They had a place uh, just south of Norwich. And it was one of those situations where I thought, yeah, this is going to be great until I went, for some reason, we did a, a preview day where I went with my parents. And uh, for, for as you know, when you're a youngster, your brain does strange things to you. I actually came away and thought, actually, I don't want to be doing this anymore. So uh, much to the dismay of my father, um, I, I sort of, we went on holiday. I remember it going to Corfu, I think it was, where I broke the news that actually I don't want to go to college and do horticulture anymore. So... That was a bit of a tough call, but um, that then led, interestingly, to my father had a relationship with Ben Burgess, the the man himself. And, yes, um, so I do remember spoke, him. Yeah, um, so he actually spoke to him, and um, I then had a conversation as well, and um, that then led, he was on the, the governor's, chair of governors for Lincolnshire College of Agriculture, and I ended up enrolling on the engineering course there. And the rest is history, as they say. So, um, so, so it is a question of um, who you know, not necessarily what yeah, you know yeah, in, in those early days. Yeah, and, and I look back, you know, and I then sort of went to work sort of in my industrial year at Ben Burgess and, and was fortunate enough to get a job with them when I came out of college at the end of it. So uh, I, low, I owe a lot to, to Ben Burgess himself for where my career has led, really. Excellent. And, and did you enjoy the dealer life? Yes, I did actually. It was, um, it was, it was. It's completely different. I think if you try and explain to somebody that's been in the manufacturing side 
how the dealer life is different. It, 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 I wouldn't say it falls on deaf ears. It takes some understanding. But I remember, you know, after working for a dealer for sort of six years, going to a manufacturer and, and actually not having to be committed to doing things on a Saturday. That, that was one of the strangest things. And, and uh, yeah, it, it, it didn't really manifest itself that it was going to be that different until, you know, I actually changed to a manufacturer. But there's so, other so, pressures that a manufacturer has that a dealer doesn't have, I guess. Sure. So how come you were recruited to join John Deere? Did, did you apply? Did an op opportunity arise or what? Yeah, I um, there was a there was a job going. Um, I was only 25 at the time, I think, as a as a territory manager for the area that I was covering, plus another one. So I applied, uh, went to the interview, and was was duly told by the general manager of the time at John Deere that I've got trainees that are older than you that aren't out <laughs> in the field yet. So I thought, well, that, that means I'm not getting this job. And, and I got the usual, I'll put you on record and we'll let you know. And, and to be fair, I think it was Peter Leach, who was the service manager at the time, came back to me about six months later and offered me a job in on the technical side. And again, you know, there, there it sort of started, really. And that was with the agricultural division, was it? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was that they made a new area. They were looking for an extra person to cover the southeast. Um, I, I sort of jumped at the chance, not really realising at the time that, you know, I'd spent half my life sitting on the M25 and driving around London and trying to miss all of the traffic. So it's a bit of a, for a, for a good old Norfolk boy, it was a bit of a culture shock to end up uh, down there. But yeah, I did that for five years and, and then moved on to the territory management side, which is sort of the more sales and marketing for the Southwest. Was that, that still in the agricultural division? Yeah, so that was in agriculture. And I then moved after that as a, as a product manager to the um, office in Nottingham and did that for about five years where I did the product management for combines, forage harvesters, balers, mowers, and at the time, precision farming. And after that, then got the opportunity that the, the job came available to do the ground scare business. And actually, I, I put my name forward for that because I thought, you know, the change is like manna from heaven a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, went into the ground scare business. And I would actually say that was probably seven years of the biggest enjoyment that I had with John. Terrific. Larry. It was good. Terrific. Um, th there is, as you know, a, a sort of different culture between agriculture and grounds care i well to digress i well remember uh, being a director of a dealership which had an agricultural division and a grounds care division and when i came to give my report at board meetings the chairman always very solemnly said and now can we have a report from the toy department mm -hmm. um and so it was very much looked upon as a as, as a very poor relation of the agricultural division was that manifest within john deere was it was a similar time of feelings with internally i guess what you're trying to say is it's did, did we feel like second class citizens and yeah you got it um yeah, yeah i would say that that probably is right and and there was always this i would say a little bit of a stigma um that you know the big stuff is what matters the most and the little stuff is just they actually called it 
complementary business, which, um, yes. as you can imagine, sat really well with us in the complementary business to agriculture. But um, the reality is, I would say that the the money, a lot of the profit, was actually coming out of the groundscape business. Yes. So, you know, it's um, it's it's all right having the volume, but actually, it's where you make the money. I think. Yeah, and in the early days, that's what ransoms found. They were they were making more money out of the groundscape uh, than the ag, um, but it was always still regarded as the as the add-on rather than yeah. anything else um so then from there on after seven years you, you you presumably had the opportunity to take a more international role did you yeah we um the 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 whole region so so the the ag and ground care business for john deere so it has four regions and and the region that i was in was europe middle east north africa cis so i took a regional role in this new sort of structure and actually set up the what they call the, the strategic and national account business. So John Deere was very good at going through the dealer network, but where we had growing customers of, of bigger and bigger scale, we needed to have more closer contact with them. So my department was then to have account managers that would negotiate a deal on behalf of the dealer, I may say. So we, we never went direct. Um, we always did the negotiations with the dealers as part of it. And I think that's actually the strength sometimes of, of those sort of deals, because when yeah. I looked at some of the competition that went direct and tried to do it without the dealer network, you actually need the dealers because again going back to my my dealer history they're the guys that will turn out at 11 o'clock on a sunday night to go and repair something whereas i don't want to decry manufacturing people but sometimes <laughs> oh, go on available well yeah. that'll be manna from heaven to the listeners to this podcast i'm sure yeah. which is very much geared towards the the future of the, the the dealer after that period if we come up to date you had an opportunity did you feel that you'd spent enough time was there anywhere else to go in john dear uh, david or or were you looking for a change i think you know i done i'd done two roles for seven years everything previous to that i'd done for five years you know we go through these um sort of character profiling courses and stuff i have got a bit of a character that you know if things don't change on a regular basis i get somewhat bored um <laughs> so i think i'd got to the point where i'd been offered international roles where i had to move um outside of the uk i hadn't been prepared or wanted to and i think it was getting to the stage where i had no choice on that. I think the the new regional office that they're building, I would have had to have had an office there. So I was thinking, you know, what is the next step? Um, and lo and behold, somebody reached out from Kubota and said, hey, we've got an opportunity to be part of the UK business, which is what it all started off originally, UK and Ireland. And, and now also added to that, I have a, a bit of an a regional role as well for trying to transform our business into more of a, a European footprint. I, I see, and, and congratulations on getting that role, which you, you got in 2018. I see your title is actually Managing Director and Vice President Business Transformation. What does that mean, Business Transformation? Well, for, for Kubota, it, it means more centralization of a lot of the roles that were being done by separate sales companies in Europe. So, you know, the order management process was very fragmented. 
every country was going to Japan and, and doing a deal on pricing and, and shipping and, and that type of thing. So what we're trying to do as a, it's called Kubota Holdings Europe based in Holland, is bring together some of these processes. So my role is to identify some areas, i.e. let's say just something simple like dealer agreements. We're all different in every market. We've, we've aligned those. Um, we're aligning our order uh, process for, for the uh, sales side. Um, we're bringing together the marketing. So I'm trying to be a bit of a conduit. And, and to be fair, you know, I've seen some pretty good processes from my old company. And uh, why, why bother reinventing the wheel? Yeah. So um, after you'd had a, um, when you joined Kubota and you'd had an international role, did you, did you have a good knowledge of the UK debt dealer network? Um, did, or did you have a, a dirty great map with a lot of pins in it and uh, you started from there? Well, you know, I, I did, what, 10 years in the field um, with, with my previous company as a territory person then I, you know even working for a dealer you, you get to meet other dealers at events then running the ground scare business for them you know it was a different network that i i got to meet so fortunately at the end of the the ground scare period i knew a lot of the ag dealers knew all of the the ground scare dealers and there was interestingly you know i had seven years when i was doing an international role Sort of traveling around the region and um, I, I started I did lose touch and, and I must admit that was one area that you know probably going back to working for a dealer and spending so much time in the field um, I did miss you know because I ended up in all of the you know corporate meetings and all of the RDR that goes on behind it so yeah and now I've come to Kubota I've met a new bunch of dealers and and also as you've seen in the press, we've we've managed to sort of appoint a few of my previous contacts, and uh, yes. yeah, yeah, uh, it's going pretty well. Did, did you um, do you see there's some parallels when uh, John Deere started in the UK back in the mid '60s from scratch? They were the new kid on the block. Now you're not the new kid on the block because you have a a good long track record within. Uh, grounds care but in ag you 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 have uh ground to make up shall we say um and i think from recollection that deer only appointed five dealers within their first year uh, two of which i think uh, ben burgess your old company and tuckwells are still there and and three are not um sure. but do you see yourselves in a similar sort of position yeah i mean the parallels in some respects are a bit uncanny i remember <laughs> me meetings um ben burgess with the territory manager from john deere and and him beating us up because i think we've got eight percent market share in north norfolk you know and and i've come to Kubota and and we are sort of in the same sphere of of market share in agriculture as we were back then i think it's it's actually it's a challenge to go back down to that level again but it's if i couldn't see a way of improving it, it that would be a bigger worry to me um now but it, it's it's also given me a little bit of you know don't give up you know and we have our peaks and troughs in that but you know it puts us we're still in the top five you know as a brand in in overall tractor sales in the uk which unfortunately we've it's a bit of a japanese culture to be quite um, conservative 
we haven't really oversold that and um, I think that's an area that we could you know make sure that people know that we're not just the little grounds care and digger company which somebody referred to me as once. <laughs> yes well a lot of people will have read of uh, there is has been quite a lot of shall we call it franchise churn uh, in recent months and years uh, mainly prompted by John Deere one has to say in their quest for uh, the dealer of tomorrow um, now you've just replaced a John Deere dealer operating six branches in Scotland um, who've had a 40-year association with Deere so so what are the challenges for you as a company and, and the dealer itself in in setting up and getting up to speed uh, with a new product range to sell yeah that's a really good question because I've literally just come out of a meeting with all of our management team and area managers that cover um, sort of Scotland to make sure that we're supporting that new dealer properly and and when I compare it to me joining um, Kubota after 28 years with another company everything you touch and look at is different and I think you don't really comprehend that until it's all sat in front of you and you, you can't even as strangely enough you know when I arrived here I couldn't after three months find where the dealer list was you know um, <laughs> Whereas, you know, it was a shortcut on my screen, you know, on my pre previous job. But I think the dealer has to go through all that as well. That the, the only thing thinking about that that I would add, though, it's a bit of a cliche, I know, and I've used it so many times, um, it's probably getting a bit boring. But a change is as good as a rest. Yes. And, and actually, as long as you've got the, the vigor and ambition to move forward with it, actually, it doesn't sort of seem like a massive problem. I think only if you've got a, um, people or you've got a bit of a temperament that's that's saying, oh, I wish this hadn't happened and now this is the consequence of it, it becomes a problem. But I, I must admit with, with um, HRN as an example in Scotland, that they're anxious to, you know, make sure that they move forward with us. So officially they start with us on the 1st of November. Yes. Um, and, um, oh, you know, a couple of days time, yeah. Yeah, we're going to make sure that, you know, they've got all of the things in place. And, it, and it's actually quite refreshing to, to have all of that energy sort of flowing around. And, and, and obviously they cannot quite or can, cannot replicate the uh, breadth of the portfolio, the deer portfolio that they had to sell uh, with Kubota. Is that an issue? Um, well, no, I mean, we're, we're very strong in uh, the commercial ground scare business. So um, mm. they've got a, a part of Scotland um, for that area. They've got, you know, nearly all of Scotland um, or down to, you know, the main cities, uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow for agriculture. Um, so that's no, well, actually, it's a, it's a bigger area than they had with their previous um, supplier. Um, they've also got Cavernland for a, for a bigger area, which is a, a Kubota company, um, as you know. So yes. that's an expanded range and area. And then also they've now got construction, which um, they were doing large excavators already. But now the, the mini digger and midi digger, as they call it, business is, is actually at the moment one of the only areas, um, well, the best area to be in during COVID because it's had the smallest decrease in volume. So they've got more strings to their bows. That, that, that's been a challenge for them because they've got to learn how to sell more diggers and more ground scale equipment. But um, it's the breadth of 
what we do and I think the nice thing is it's in different customer segments so yes. we're actually in agriculture grounds care and construction so it gives you a little bit more um, more scope if if one market's strong and the other one's weak yeah and um, you you run those three divisions plus of course the engine division how yeah. do you divvy up that within a within a dealership um because some dealerships will presumably only have one of those divisions that it will sell others will have more than one and some may well have three um, do each of those dealers really need to run those divisions internally as separate divisions are they all different and customers are different and so on yeah it, it's um yeah and, and i think past history has shown that a grounds care dealer has to be a grounds care dealer really even if it's part of a, a large agricultural dealership um, they need to have separate focus, separate salespeople, separate technicians, because it is a different customer base you're dealing with. I would then say the construction piece is also the same, where you have to have different uh, departments to do it. An interesting fact, though, uh, I guess, is that an agricultural dealer, and you look at them around the UK, you, you see this quite often, can morph into being a construction dealer as well with a separate department and can also morph into being a grounds care dealer as well, as long as they keep that piece separately. You don't see quite so much um, construction dealers going into ag and you don't see as many grounds care dealers going into ag. So the sort of the focal point i would say for quite a few of these businesses is the agricultural side and david carrying on the theme of specialization but from a different angle uh, on the very day that we are recording this podcast comes a pretty dramatic and significant announcement regarding two of the uk's largest multi-branch dealerships both of whom have held agco and kubota franchises for many years they are Chandler's Farm Equipment, who operates seven branches across Lincolnshire and the East Midlands, and Lister Wilder, who operate eight branches across the southern counties. In short, a press release issued by Agco says that they have reached an agreement whereby Chandler's will acquire Lister Wilder's agricultural business and take over five of its branches to represent Massey Ferguson, Valtra and Fent whilst Lister Wilder will now focus exclusively on the Kubota agricultural, grounds care and construction product range from three of its existing branches, but will cohabit with Chandler's for an interim period from three branches whilst new facilities are being established, and all this to take effect from January. Now, now all this seems like a rather complicated jigsaw puzzle, if not a game of tractor chess. So will we see more of this franchise conflict as Kubota expands its presence into the agricultural market? And what is the background behind this announcement? I would say it is a very complex situation there because the situation is with Chandler's in that they have um, Kubota ground care. They don't actually have the ag um, business. Um, it's, so it's only one portion of our sort of um, business unit. Um, and then Lister Wilder have all three of our ground care, ag and construction divisions, and they will keep focusing on that so that they're not decoupling their Kubota agricultural business. That, that will stay with Lister Wilder. 
it came around, I guess, not so much because of us, I think because of Agco have, have never made it a secret that their Route 66 strategy is to try and separate their brands slightly. I think um, Lister Wilder realized that that's something that they had to do from an Agco point of view. Um, and then I think the what happened then was that, that they had a, a meeting with Chandler's the way I understand it to see you know what the opportunities were you know what perhaps Chandler's may have been doing I guess and then it got into a bigger conversation I think about well you know why don't we let the agco business go the agricultural business they call that but it's really the agco and associated franchises that they hold let that go to Chandler's and then that leaves Lister Wilder to focus wholly on the um, on the Kubota business. So it, it's, yeah, uh, quite complex in the, I don't think it started off in, in that vein, but I think it started off realizing, and, and again, not even from an ADCO point of view, that the dealer, Lister Wilder, needed to separate um, their um, Kubota business and also their ACO business and that then lead to a chain of events which ended up them selling the ACO piece um, and retaining the the Kubota piece so it's good for ACO I would I would guess and it and it's good for Kubota because you know we've got a dealer now that is wholly uh, focused around just their Kubota business and, and not doing some ACO and, and some Kubota so it's it's worked out for both of us really and this is a situation that you've you've faced in some other dealerships uh, in in the past few months um yeah i i don't yeah it's difficult to know what what agco's position is on it i haven't had any direct communication with them um but i've seen in the press like you chris that they're now pairing up um valtra and fent dealers they've done it in north england and scotland in the last few weeks um, and then separating that, the Massey brand. Obviously, they're now having a bit more of a push on that. I think they cohabited within a lot of um, agco dealers in the past, and they're obviously now pulling those two um, parts of their business separately. Um, and I think for Lister Wilder, with us as well, having a full range of ag grounds care and, um, and uh, construction products, that then meant breaking the business into three pieces which um is you know, two is bad enough but when you're going to break it three times i think that makes it even worse so that's i guess you know and i haven't got insider information on this this is where i guess it led to you know chandler's and lister wilder sitting together and saying wouldn't it make sense to just you know we'll break it twice for agco and we'll break away and, and concentrate on kubota uh, did, did I did, did I understand earlier in your your reply to this that you said that um, Lister Wilder would be retaining some agco business? Is is that no, correct? No, no. So so they would retain agricultural business through ah. what they do with Kubota. So ah. we've got agricultural products that we sell in Orange, and and yeah, that's where it gets a bit confusing because people think, oh, they're selling all of their agricultural business. Well, they're no. selling their agco agricultural business. I understand and some of the franchises that went with that. 
yes and retaining the Kubota uh, agricultural business yeah and ancillary products that go with that as well were these discussions fairly well down the line when when you got involved or were how early in, in the stage were you in, involved in the uh, conversation I would say probably we were the first stop um, which is, is quite nice to be in that position. Because, Apart from Agco, presumably. Yeah, I think they wanted to know where, where Kubota sat first. Really? Because, yeah. You know, if they initially were going to break the two Agco brands into two different areas, um, they wanted to know how, you know, Kubota then saw themselves within the list of wilder business. And, you know, I said, you know, we'd be happy, <laughs> probably wouldn't, you know, be anything different. We'd be happy to see um you know we have a separate identity within Lester Wilder and of course the next time we had discussions they'd spoken to Agco and actually it led to something slightly different where the business would would end up being sold and um do Lister Wilder gain any extra territory that might have been handled by Chandler's previously um no because there, there there is actually a gap between Chandler's and also Lister Wilder so yes. so it doesn't overlap unfortunately on the ag side we've had to um let go uh, two two dealers um who are working their notice out um on the ag side to give them a, a I would say a more joined up agricultural territory than they had previously because they, they had a conflict with agriculture in that they didn't have the Agco business and also the Kubota Ag business together. Um, that was separate in, in their depot in Kent. So now with selling Agco, um, they can actually focus on agriculture more than they could in the past across their whole area. Um, we're getting to know or have known for some time what John Deere's strategy is in terms of dealer appointments and, and now uh, Agco seem to be following their own path. Um, do, do you think that other dealers, um, sorry, other tractor brands uh, might get involved in similar type of discussions with their dealers? Yeah, I think it goes back to some of the previous comments we made during the, the interview that, you know, especially in agriculture, you need an, an element of scale to your business to be able to um, focus on some of those products. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, Kubota doesn't have uh, harvesting equipment, as an example, or self-propelled sprayers. Um, so it's not quite as critical for us to actually have that scale. But, you know, New Holland, um, Class, uh, Agco, John Deere all have those products uh, in some shape or form and actually need to then have scale dealers to be able to support them. So the fortunate side for us is that predominantly it's, it's tractor product and, and implements, which you don't have to have super dealers to look after it. No, no. And I guess it goes back to one of the earlier comments you made uh, during our conversation is that uh, uh, in a strange kind of way, one door shuts and another open or several open. So uh, I'm sure you were hoping that is certainly going to be the case with Lister Wilder, certainly. Yeah, uh, yeah. As, as I said, I guess the it started off as a discussion about how they identify their two um, businesses separately because they knew they were going to get into conflict probably you know with both of us in the long run um, you know we're pushing harder to to get everybody or more more people to do ag um, and they realized that they probably need to just split that off and it then led to 
um, us actually getting an even bigger slice of the pie with, with Lister Wilder wholly focusing just on their Kubota business. And Lister Wilder appear to be very uh, keen on uh, quite significant close branding uh, with their own company, with you as a company as well, particularly with new branches, are very heavily Kubota uh, branded, aren't they? Yes, yeah, and, and that works well for us. And, and again, being a, trying to pr promote ourselves as a global uh, major brand, which is one of our sort of goals in the long term, you know, we need to have that sort of strong identity in the marketplace. So how, uh, David, how easy is it to find well-resourced, well-financed dealers on which you can base a long-term business relationship? Oh, wow. That's, uh, you know, there's, there's a few things that you have to do there. It's the finance and the relationship. I think that's the, the two, so I would say the secret sources, those two pieces. Um, you know, the ground scare dealers aren't quite so unfortunate that they have to have that much capital that they can do it on a, on a smaller scale, even today. Yes. Um, and I think even the manufacturer is a bit more generous when it comes to sort of funding those types of dealers. But the agricultural business nowadays, um, and if you were into big construction, it would be the same thing. You know, you're funding used equipment that's a quarter of a million pounds sometimes. Mm. You know, and, you know, it can actually stop your trading. It's not the case you can't do the deal. It's just a case that you haven't got the capital to do it. So dealers have to have very deep pockets nowadays and and dare i say that a lot of manufacturers are pushing more and more of that own ownership of of the process onto them so even when you know you have a problem with a machine unfortunately it's the dealer that often has to pick up the used equipment going out to support it or the demonstrator so um it's not easy and, and that's unfortunately why we're not seeing as many new dealers coming in to the to the marketplace. Um, and one of the only routes you probably see that nowadays is, you know, if they they start in used equipment. Yes. Yeah. Do, do you think that in the case of new dealer startups or indeed when a dealer runs into trouble, that are we likely to see manufacturers step in to take over and, and, and run dealerships? I think there's a case in the States recently where Agco have acquired a dealership. Um, do, do you see that happening at all over here? I think if we're going to go, you know, with some of the manufacturers moving more and more to, I'd even go beyond this, this super dealer. It's now even becoming a mega dealer. Yeah. Um, if we've got mega dealers out there that actually get wobbly financially, the manufacturer is left with no alternative but to step in because it also goes back to the customer base in that, um, you know, you can't let all of those customers down. When it was smaller dealers, you, you know, you had a smaller problem. But now with these big ones, they're having to be, um, you know, I would say very closely monitored compared to what they were in the future. I think manufacturers had what they had to sell, found a dealer channel. You buy it for this price. You can buy it a bit cheaper in a, in a pre-season and you get on and, and do it. But I think now the dealer is so closely ingrained with the, um, with the manufacturer because, you know, there's a lot of money floating between both of those businesses and they're, they're ingrained with each other nowadays in not so much in grounds care, um, but I can see that more and more with, with Agnel Construction. But, but in general, you still see the importance of the dealer's name 
uh, most oh. of whom, of course, are family owned, uh, yeah. being above the door has been uh, essential to the uh, to the business in the future. Yeah. And, and manufacturers, you know, only have a finite pot of money that they can spend and, and their core competence is building machinery and, and solutions, we call it, I guess, if you're looking at precision farming and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and they haven't got enough to go around and buy all of the dealer networks up and, and go to market. And, no. you know, even where that's happened in the car trade, I, I don't know if it's been a raving success. You know, I think the great thing is to have a dealer principal that wakes up in the morning and as well as, you know, trying to sell as much as he can, um, he's also thinking about the customer and, and sometimes the manufacturer doesn't think about the customer as much as a dealer does because they're one step removed. And, and you know, I know from having national accounts in my previous role, you know, to try and explain what the customer requires out of this, you sometimes find yourself in a manufacturer doing that more times than you should. I mean, again, uh, if you look at trends around the world and, and the United States is not the UK, it's a huge market. Uh, we are seeing an um, instance of external investment uh, being uh, coming into dealerships. Uh, one company, Titan, uh, certainly is quoted on the stock market and operates something like 100 dealerships. Uh, some of which are in Europe. Do, do you see that uh, uh, model being uh, translated into the UK at all? Well, I think you're seeing it with some of the manufacturers that, you know, they're getting to a size now that um, if they're going to grow again, um, because it's all happened, you know, probably within the last 10 to 15 years, they might not have the liquid um, capital to actually, you know, double again. So, you know, you might start to see, you know, some American business, I would say, they tend to be the ones that are a little bit more mobile. They don't seem to be too fussed about, you know, coming over to another country and, and setting a business up. So I can see that happening. Uh, would it happen with Kubota at this stage? I, I don't think so. But, you know, perhaps some of those other manufacturers, um, you would see the possibility of some out of UK funding coming into it, I'd say. If we, if we come up to date, uh, David, this year, uh, don't need to tell anybody, has been a difficult year and challenging year. What, what, what lessons have you learned from this year or what changes have you and your dealers had to make um, as a result of the pandemic and the restriction on trading and so on? Uh, it's, it's the digital piece, I think, uh, Chris. You know, I mean, like us now, I mean, in the good old days of, of eight months ago, we would have probably been sat together in either your or my office and we'd have had a cup of tea in front of us and um, somebody would have been there with a camera um, you know filming all of this but you know here we find ourselves actually achieving the same thing but doing it over a virtual conference and so digitalization has gone from we we need to do that as a manufacturer and I think dealers knew they need to do it better to if we don't do it we we aren't going to survive this so the digitalization is, is really accelerated things. But I also think, you know, we need to be mindful, especially as manufacturers and suppliers to a dealer channel, that we don't suddenly see this as an opportunity to short circuit the, the sales process and cut the dealer out. Because 
we can survive, you know, for a few months without, you know, sort of a dealer having a heavy presence, but that isn't going to bring us long-term success by chopping the dealer channel out of it. And, and from your experience with, with, with dealers, are they uh, engaging with the digital process and new digital processes? I think some are and, and some aren't. And, and it's unfortunate that the, you know, again, this goes back to scale in that, um, the smaller dealers, you know, are sometimes manning the parts counter, do, putting their overalls on when they have to and, and repairing some machines and then also doing the ordering in the evening and the, and the wife's doing the books, you know, and to then have to try and get their arms around the digital side is, is going to be a challenge for those people. But I, I still think they have an opportunity. They're going to have to probably outsource some of this stuff and, you know, bite the bullet and, and making an investment into digital because if they don't, as I say, they're going to get overtaken by events. And, and obviously a, a very uh, topical question at the moment is uh, the future of shows and exhibitions. Uh, we, we've virtually done without any shows or exhibitions or open days or conferences and goodness knows what this year and there's a great big question mark about next year as well how do you read the situation at the moment on on shows and exhibitions david yeah i think at the moment you know if you ask most people you know do you need that show do you need to go to a show most people would say no we don't and and it's i put myself back into my previous role where i had lots of international travel and and that was mixed in with working from home for the first three or four years, it was absolutely fantastic to have these weeks at home and, you know, you could sit there in your pajamas and do your job. <laughs> and as long as you had a, a clean shirt on, nobody would know any different. But after a period of time, you actually sort of lose the human touch. Um, and uh, I think people are at the moment saying, isn't this virtual conferencing great? But I tell you what, give it a couple more years of doing the same thing. There'll be people saying, wouldn't it be great if we were to get together and meet up at a show and touch yes. some of this machinery with other people around? So I think at the moment, everybody's got a little bit drunk on the fact that we can run our businesses digitally. But I think there'll also be an element where we've got to try and keep the human touch. So shows, unfortunately, if we had another year without shows i don't think the world would come to an end but i think if you left it any longer than that there would be some problems i'm also very mindful of associations like um bigger and and um you know the groundsman's association that um you know without the show then they struggle to survive so i think unfortunately as an industry perhaps you know we need to see how we can support that um at, at tame your headquarters you've invested considerably in training facilities uh, and have a because i've been there several times it's an excellent uh, uh, training facility that you've got there how do you think this industry performs in comparison with other sectors um, in attracting new new talent are, are we putting ourselves around enough no i, th I think um you know we've we've got daft trucks just up the road who we have a, a pretty close relationship with and they've got i think it's 24 trainers that actually work for them and they're all at the moment engaged in virtual training we, we generally have sort of shut down our training at the moment because we haven't got that technology at the moment to do what somebody like DAF has done and that also means if you're somebody fresh coming out of school 
who's going to be the most who's going to be the industry that whets your appetite the most you look at you know the truck industry and and they're very technically driven now um i think we've got a long way to go to be the industry of choice for people coming out of school and you know i think we need to get together as an industry of agriculture and grounds care um you know to bring the cla the nfu the aea the the bank organizations together and actually join up as an industry and say come and look at what you can do across the whole breadth of farming and you know the mechanical side of it yeah uh, do we tend to hide our light under a bushel because uh, this is a very enjoyable and satisfying and rewarding industry um, not necessarily in monetary terms but certainly in job satisfaction terms and uh, how do we get that message across I think you know that we do have to talk about the monetary side I think at, yes. at the end of the day you know when you look at you know us as a manufacturer when we're looking for um, R&D and, and design engineers we're actually out there um, going after the same talent pool as Mercedes cars and trucks and DAF and and uh, Caterpillar and so you know I think unfortunately we've been able to sort of be a, a, an industry of paying less but one thing we need to do is just accept that you're going to have to pay somebody in our industry the same amount as they would have been paid to repair BMW cars and that's a bit of a knock-on to the customer in that he's going to have to pay the same as he does to have his Range Rover serviced he doesn't argue that because he's got no choice and and so that's one element of it um and i think you know getting all of the associations together for me and becoming a bigger draw where you could say to somebody coming out of school if you like the lifestyle of the farming piece you could go down that route if you like the lifestyle of technology and and mechanics you can go down that piece but at the moment we're all vying for you know government funding separately but you've obviously been trained well because uh, that's directly out of the peter leach playbook uh, yep. from uh, from john deere in comparison comparing uh, uh, the tractor costs of repairing and servicing a tractor to either a range rover or or, or a bmw yeah, yeah. where where it becomes difficult though is on that ground scare product you know yes. and you know the guy that's got the range rover comes in with his his walk behind mower and he and he he will not spend the same value on the cost of the, the mower as as you know it's worth so yeah, yeah. in the ground scare it does become more of a problem i think Excellent. Well, look, many, many thanks, David. We, we've covered a lot of ground and, and very interesting ground at, at that. So could I thank you very much for your time? Yes, thank you, Chris. Now, it's been a pleasure and um, I'm sure we'll meet up in person one day. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. Well, that has been a fascinating and highly topical insight into the rapidly evolving shape of our industry and gives proof once again of the old adage that the only constant is change. I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me and this is Inside AgriTurf.